Awesome. Well, you guys, we're in 1 Timothy this morning. We're actually going to finish 1 Timothy. Uh, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 11 to 21. Going to finish off 1 Timothy this morning. And uh, the title is Ministering to a Variety, number two. This is the second part of the message. We looked at a couple groups last week, and this week we're going to look at a couple groups as well that Paul addresses as he writes to Timothy. So 1 Timothy 6, 11. And uh, again, today we're going to look at ministering to pastors and ministering to the rich. Paul was really, he was a great exhorter, right? The Apostle Paul. I mean, exhortations from godly people are helpful. Maybe not at first, and we'll talk about that. But remember, an exhortation is a call to action. It's kind of like, you know, okay, I'm like, I'm, I'm in my 40s, so I'm just saying, like, it's like Young Guns. When I was a kid, I liked the movie Young Guns, and they said, Regulators, let's ride. Remember that? Regulators, or like Braveheart. Braveheart, another oldie, right, where he rallies up the troops. He freed it up. You guys know that? I mean, it's like many movies where one character, like, gives this speech to motivate the crew to beat the bad guy, right? Exhortations are direct statements that motivate us to spiritual things. And how many of us know we need motivation often? We need some encouragement. Life is hard, and sometimes we lose focus. It's like, it's like children, no offense, children. But the way their brains develop, uh, at the ages between 6 through 11, they tell stories and make statements that do not necessarily tie together. And um, it's, it's like a soliloquy, which means they don't consider who's listening, uh, nor do they care of the stories if they tie together. It makes sense or not. It doesn't matter. Much of the time, they verbally state kind of scattered thoughts. Now, the brain matures past that, past that, but even adults can sometimes feel scattered, right? We can tend to lose sight of what matters in life. We can get temporary amnesia in that we forget about the spiritual realm. So when a mature believer calls us to step up or take godly action in a situation, at first, it may hurt a little bit. Because we're like, well, why are they telling me to do that? I know I need to do that, Right? Even though, you know, often we know that person's exhortation is correct about us. We do need to step up in certain ways, and we need to do it anyway. Sometimes it can hurt because we want to come to those realizations ourselves without anybody. You know, like, but the fact is, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety, like Proverbs says. Godly outside perspective will help us not to be scattered. But an exhortation, it may hurt to hear it first, but then it really helps. You ever been corrected, at, you know, by a boss at a job? It's like, it's not fun. It's not like, I can't wait to be corrected and yell that today. But, but if the boss is right and you did something that needed to be called out, it's for your own good and the good of the company. Well, as we exhort each other in the Lord, it's for our own good and it's for the good of the body of Christ. And so I remember when I was talking to, on the phone to one of my past, pastor friends, and I love this guy. I met him at a youth conference years ago. He used to be a youth, youth pastor too. Um, but, uh, man, he's very direct, and that's why I like him. He is very direct. Um, not too direct, but very, some people would say he's too direct, but he's very direct. I remember I was talking on the phone with him about some pastor stuff, and, uh, and he exhorted and rebuked me something concerning pastoring, and, man, did it hurt to hear. He was just, like, straight, I was like, dude, you need to, blah. and I was, and he was, his, I didn't get mad, though. I didn't get offended. You know why? I knew his heart towards me. Like, now, if a stranger rebuked me, I'd be like, what? Who are you? Like, what's going on? But this guy was a good friend. He's super godly. He loves Jesus. He loves me and my family, and I know that. So when he let the exhortations fly towards me, I was like, but, but, you're right. <laughs> you ever been there? It's like, but, 
you want to argue because you want to win the debate, but you know they're right. The Apostle Paul, he was exhorting young Pastor Timothy like crazy, and Timothy wasn't arguing about it. Why? Because Timothy knew Paul's heart for the church and his heart for him. If we never received any correction or exhortation from those who are strong in the faith, we could be led into complacency or sin or a hard heart. You know, it's, it's like in marriage. If you can never take any sort of constructive criticism from your spouse, guess what? You're not going to grow because you're prideful, right? I mean, it's just true. But even if we get mad at first and then calm down, you know, and come to the realization that your spouse is right about something, then you will assess and accept that correction or exhortation. It might take a while, but you'll accept it. Paul loved Timothy. He knew that by looking through Acts, and, you know, we know that he loved him by looking through Acts and First and Second Timothy. He loved Timothy. Paul called him a beloved, his beloved and his son in the faith. Paul used his precious time to minister to young Timothy, to help him have the divine order in a local assembly. Right? And those people who are godly, who are mature in the faith, and who love you, listen to them. You know, now I'm not saying everything they say is spot on, but be open to exhortation and even correction because that's one main way we grow. That's one main way we realize stuff about ourselves. You know, you might think that you're the most loving person that you know, right? And, and then you tell your friend that, and they start laughing hysterically. And you're like, what? Wait, aren't I? You know, or you tell your spouse how great you are, and they go, seriously? <laughs> you know, it's like godly outside perspective is essential in the life of a Christian. So that's what we're going to see in this last part of Timothy. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We just thank you for being able to just go verse by verse and line by line, chapter by chapter, and book by book. And we just thank you that we're coming to the end of First Timothy, Lord. And we just pray that you'd speak to us uh, corporately as a church and individually as believers, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing is we're going to see the pastor himself ministering to the pastor. So verse 11, 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potente, the King of King and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And guys, we're going to jump down to 20 and 21 because it goes together. Verse 20. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. So while caring for the people, Timothy was instructed about the need to care for his own needs as well. Y yes, we put others first, God first, others next, right? But we must also take care of ourselves or what's going to happen? We're going to get burnt out. We're going to get depressed, frustrated, weary, anxious, exhausted, and worse. Almost 80% of pastors and their wives quit after the first two years of pastoring. And one of the reasons why is that they do not take care of themselves. They, they're busy ministering to others constantly and neglect their own needs. 
they are all, they're so focused on, on ministering to others, which is good to minister to others, but it's at the expense of their own health and well-being even. One of Paul's admonitions in verse 16 was to take heed unto thyself. When pastors are married to their ministries, they neglect the most important part of their lives. They neglect their own time with the Lord. They neglect their family. They neglect, you know, resting themselves. I was at the place a few times in ministry trying to do everything, and I, I sustained it for a while. I, tried, I did, like, every night of the week. I had some ministry I was running or something I was doing until I got totally burned out, and I was totally unhappy, and I'm, I had to take a break. What it did, though, was force me to raise up other leaders and put them in charge of ministries that I started. But I realized I was consumed with ministry more than being consumed with the things of God. Like, I was so into the work like Martha, but I neglected sitting at the feet of Jesus and just worshiping like Mary. Yes, we're called to serve, but it's not a contest and God will not be impressed by your super hard work. He's not going to say, you're better than all these other people. You know, like, yes, according to the Bible, we get rewards in heaven, sure, for serving God. But God's not going, you know, to give us a constant pat on the back with everything that we do. Like, I believe he is more pleased when we, you know, when, yes, we serve, but when we worship at his feet. Like, if we neglect our own one-on-one -on -one relationship with the Lord, then we're going to be very poor at ministering to others. In verse 11, the phrase, but thou, indicates a contrast between Timothy and the false teachers. They were, the teachers were men of the world, but Timothy was a man of God. And so this special designation, man of God, was also given to Moses and Samuel and Elijah and David. So Timothy was in good company. If Timothy obeyed the commands of Paul, he would have spiritual success in the ministry and a good testimony and would therefore be a man of God. And so in verse 11, it says, but you, O man of God, flee these things. The word flee, you know, in this verse doesn't have to do with physically running away like Joseph. It has everything to do with Timothy separating himself from the sins of the false teachers. Remember, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, 5, he wrote, from such, withdraw yourself. And like, don't get me wrong when I'm about to say the statement, but just listen, like, not all unity is good. Not all unity is good and not all division is bad. Not all unity is good and not all division is bad. There are times when a follower of Jesus may have to stand up against false teachers, bad doctrines, and ungodly practices. Don't yoke together with the false teacher or you'll be guilty by association. But on the other hand, don't run away from a false teacher physically if you can confront them with the truth because they, this is still a possibility they could be saved. Yet in dealing with false teachers, we must act on biblical conviction, not personal prejudice or carnal desire to debate. I know some of you are really good at debating. You, like, can win a contest right now. Like, you're really, you're just good at debating. You're good. And, and you think your viewpoints maybe are the best. But, and, and the flesh feels good when we debate, you know, when we kind of go off on others. When it bubbles up, we're like, yeah, I proved my point. I'm right, you know. And if it didn't, it would be easy to resist the flesh, but we need the Spirit's strength to resist for us. So verse 11, it continues, it says, And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Warren Wiersbe, a commentator, said about this verse, Separation without positive growth becomes isolation. Separation without positive growth becomes isolation. We must cultivate these things in our lives or else, or else we'll be known only for what we oppose rather than 
what we propose. Do you know what I'm saying? Now, you know, no one is going to get saved because of what you're against. Oh, they're against everything. I'm going to accept Jesus. All they know is what you're against, right? It, It may lead them in that direction, but souls will get saved when they hear what you are for. So the word righteousness in this verse means personal integrity, and godliness means practical piety. The first has to do with character. The second has to do with conduct. And faith can be rightly translated faithfulness, an action. You may have heard this phrase, but it's appropriate here. The greatest ability is, do you guys know that? Dependability. The greatest ability is dependability, faithfulness, right? God can use someone who's faithful. Maybe they're talents. Maybe they're not that talented at many things, but they show up all the time. God's going to use them over the super talented person that never shows up. And so the love that's mentioned here as well is agape love. You've heard that before, which is love that seeks to give rather than seeks to get. Patience carries the idea of endurance. Endurance means staying with it when things get tough. Right? Patience here means courage that continues in even difficult places. And meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. It can be translated gentleness as well. So moving on to verse 12 to 16, the word fight, it's an interesting word. It actually means agonizing in the Greek. Agonize. Sounds fun, right? I can't wait to agonize. Like, but this word applies to both the athlete and the soldier. It describes a person giving their best to win the prize or have victory in the battle. Know this, though. This fight is not between believers. It is between the believer and the enemy. The believer is fighting to rightly defend the faith so the truth will stand. And here is where an issue messes things up. When a believer spends all their time fighting the enemy, but they have no time to do their work or serve the Lord and build the church, I would just say don't always be on the defense or you'll never play offense and build. You'll be too busy defending. And a great picture of this is Nehemiah. That's one of my favorite books, Nehemiah on leadership, Nehemiah. Like Nehemiah, we are to have a tool, like a trial in one hand to work and a sword in the other for protection, right? Building while defending. Timothy's natural timidity may have caused him to want to shrink back from confrontation. Some people are prone to be a little more timid than others, but to encourage him, all he had to do, encourage himself, all he had to do was remember that Jesus Christ and his bold confession, and he'd be uplifted. Again, Paul gave uh, gave Timothy like military orders. He says, I give thee charge, I give you charge. Timothy was a guard. He was to guard the commandment and obey it. Why? Because one day his supreme commander would come and he'd have to give a report on his assignment. The way to be ready to obey orders is without spot or blame in verse 14. And the word appearing in the Greek where we get the word epiphany. Epiphany means a glorious manifestation. This word was used in the first century to describe the appearing of a god who would deliver someone from trouble. Paul used this word appearing for the first coming of Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy 1.10. And Paul used this word for Christ's return in 2 Timothy 4.1 and 4.8. We don't know the exact day or hour when Christ will return. It will be in his own time, like verse 15 states. Like he knows the divine schedule. We don't. He knows a divine schedule. It's our job to be totally faithful every day and just abide in him. 1 John 2, 28. 
So the subject of verse 16 is that Jesus is the only ruler, even though others may try and take his title. Potante, it comes from the word power. God is sovereign over a few things. No, he's sovereign over all. Even though some earthly rulers think they have ultimate power, they don't. God does. The phrase king of king and lord of lords, it's a title given to the Father. Even though we think of Jesus when we think of this phrase, of course, Jesus reveals the Father to us so he can justly claim this title. And immortality, we know what that means, not subject to death. All of humanity is subject to death. It's a guarantee, right? But the Father is not subject to death. He has always been, he always will be. Remember 1 Timothy 1.17, it said that God is immortal, invisible, the only wise God. God is not subject to death. Therefore, he is the life giver. In this life, Christians are in mortal bodies, but when Jesus returns, we shall share in his immortality, 1 Corinthians 15.50-58. So remember, Paul is writing all of these things to Timothy to encourage him to fight the good fight of faith and to not give up. And here's why we don't have to fear at all. We don't fear life because God is sovereign. We don't fear death because he shares immortality with us. So it's impossible for a sinful human to approach a holy God, right? It's only through Jesus that we can actually be accepted into his presence. And so Paul wrote so much about the person of Christ and the glory of God. Why? Probably because as a warning against the emperor cult that existed in the Roman Empire. It was normal to announce Caesar is Lord. Like it was, you had to, like that's what you announced. Christians would always get in trouble. They would get persecuted because they wouldn't announce Caesar is Lord. What would they announce? They would announce Jesus is Lord and they get in trouble. Only God has the honor and the power. If Timothy was going to fight the good fight of faith, he had to know and believe that Jesus was worthy of worship and complete devotion. So in verse 20 and 21, we see, he says, be faithful. Like God has committed the truth to Paul and Paul committed the truth to Timothy. And it was Timothy's responsibility to pass that truth on to the church. It's like we take one and pass it on. That's kind of how it is, right? With the gospel. It's like a baton in a relay race. It's like, here you go. You're next. You go and hand it to the other person. Hand it to the other person. God has committed the truth to us, we get to share it with others. This is God's way of protecting the truth and spreading it around the world. And God expects us to be faithful with that truth as well as it continues to be passed on. And so the word knowledge here refers to teachings of a heretical group called the Gnostics who claim to have special spiritual knowledge. And the Greek word for knowledge is uh, gnosis. And therefore, an agnostic, you've heard that term, I'm an agnostic, it means one who does not know yet they claim to know a great deal. The Gnostics, which we studied in detail in Colossians when we went through it, thought Jesus was just one of many emanations from God. The Gnostics had doctrine that was a mixture of Christianity, Eastern mysticism, Greek philosophy, and Jewish legalism. It offered something for everyone. Hey, whatever you want, we got it. <laughs> like, like many religious systems today. Paul summarized what they taught in one simple, devastating phrase. He said, profane and idle babblings. <laughs> this phrase can be translated, the godless mixture of contradictory notions. Some who get involved in these teachings wandered from the faith. 
most who get involved. Some of them are saved and realize this is wrong. But wrong motives and wrong teaching will cause Christians to wander from the faith. And we don't want that. We want to stay faithful, stay grounded, stick to the truth. And so that was ministering to the pastor. Now we're going to see, lastly, ministering to the rich. And for that, we're going to look at verse 17 to 19. Paul continues and he says, Command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. The rich. Paul already warned about the love of money, remember? Love of money is the root of all evil. Money isn't the root of it, but the love of money being consumed by it. But here he specifically added a special charge for Timothy to give to the, to the rich. And this charge applies to us as well. And just hang with me. You'll see what I mean. And in the verse part, first part of verse 17, it says, Command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty. In other words, the rich need to be humble. <laughs> like it's important to know we are not owners. We are stewards. It's important to know that nothing you have is yours. Don't throw rocks at me right now, but I'm just saying, now before you go, it's mine, it's mine. I heard it kind of like when kids are like, one of the first words they learn, I think, after mommy and daddy is mine, <laughs> you know? But it's like all we have materially and even our family, it's given to us by God. We're just stewards of it. It's on loan. It's, we're leasing it. <laughs> like it's just on loan to us, and we are to be good stewards of everything God has given to us. See, if you have wealth, it's because of the goodness of God, not the goodness of you. I'm just saying, you know, like it's not because we get special merits because we're so spiritual, so above everyone else. It's because God undeservedly blesses his children. Personal wealth should not lead to pride. It should lead to humility since God blessed us so much. It is possible to be rich in this world and poor in the next. It's also possible to be poor in this world and rich in the next. And... The thing is, Jesus spoke about both of these things in Luke 16, 19 to 31. But here's how a believer can be rich in this world and in the next world. If we use what we have, whatever God's given us, to honor God, then we'll be rich on earth and in eternity. A person who is materially poor in this world can still use what they have to honor God and gain great rewards in heaven. So Paul says, continues and he says, Nor trust in uncertain riches but in the living God. Trust God, not wealth. So in Luke 12, the farmer, if you remember, the farmer tried to find his security in what he possessed. But really, this is evidence of insecurity. This farmer was really not trusting God. Riches are uncertain in value and durability. The value of things always change, right, and fluctuate. It's never a sure thing. Bottom line is we should trust in the giver, not the gifts. And Paul continues, he says, who gives richly all things to enjoy. Enjoy what God gives you. Am I, are you sure I'm allowed to do that? Can I, I can enjoy stuff. Like, God wants you to enjoy what he's blessed you with. And one reassuring theme in Ecclesiastes is to enjoy the blessings of life now because life, because life will end one day, you know? This is not sinful hedonism, living in, for the pleasures of life. It's simply enjoying all that God gives us in this life. And verse 18 and 19 is the same kind of theme. Like, again, enjoy what God gives you. We should use our wealth, what we're given, to do good to others, to share, 
and to put our money to work because money is a gift from God and a tool to glorify him. When we use our money for God's glory, we enrich ourselves. We make eternal investments for the future. And it says that they may lay hold of eternal life. This doesn't mean they're not saved. It means that riches can lure a person into a make-believe world of shallow pleasures. It says, but riches used for God's will can actually lead a person, you know, um, person's ministry to be lasting, right? And he says, grace be with you. This is plural in the Greek, and really Paul was writing to the leaders, elders, not just Timothy. And as a church leader, Timothy needed to heed all of these things, but so did the church members, since they had responsibilities in the body of Christ too. Like, what we really see in this letter is that, is that we're all in this together. We're looking at local church, how the church is ordered, right? But we're all in this together. It takes the whole body of Christ utilizing their gifts and being involved in the church for this to run and be maintained. And I loved the men's lunch uh, yesterday because someone used their gift of hospitality to make amazing food. Someone used their gift of, of singing to worship with me. Um, and someone used their, their gift of, of teaching to teach us about the Feast of Moses. It was just awesome. People were using their gifts. I'm like, this is what I love to see. People are using their gifts. Order is important, and adhering to God's way regarding the local church is so vital for a church that is vibrant and spiritually thriving, thriving in depth over width, thriving in spiritual quality over numerical quantity. Like, we are linked together in unity, and when we are actively involved in God's plan, then the church runs smoothly and the Holy Spirit works powerfully, just flows through people, and we're just all in this together. So it's a blessing, and uh, again, Paul's a great exhorter, and uh, he's exhorting us. He's exhorting us through all of these six chapters, and we finished 1 Timothy.